Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers discuss legal news, events, topics, stories, and, well, whatever else strikes our fancy, really. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft, Statinius & Hollister, and co-hosting the pod today with me is Nicole Kahn of the From Law Group. Say hello, Nick. Hello. This is the Illinois budget crisis, how the expletive did we get here edition. The question we'll be answering today, how did Illinois almost become a failed state? And will we be back here in this place again sometime soon? So, Nick, this is an issue that many states and municipalities have grappled with, especially since the financial crisis. And Illinois, I think, really presents um, one of the biggest and most interesting case studies, not only because we're taping this in Chicago, but also because I think we can say uh, reasonably that um, Illinois' situation is comparable to the situation in Washington. Um, so we're going to review some of those issues today, and then we're going to be joined by Illinois Representative Greg Harris to discuss it in more depth and to get some perspective. And then we're going to have a little fun and play the stranger in legal fiction game. Sound good? Sounds good to me. All right. So let's tee it up. Uh, the Illinois budget crisis became national news in 2016 when Illinois became the first state in America to operate for more than a year without a budget. While the Democratic-controlled legislature and the Republican governor, Bruce Rauner, went round and round trying to create a budget that both sides could agree on, the Illinois deficit grew by almost $16 billion. That's the deficit, not the debt. Uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of Medicaid bills, among others, went unpaid. Uh, lottery tickets weren't being sold because the state couldn't guarantee the payment. Uh, S&P and Moody's threatened to lower states' bond rating to junk status, which really would have devastated our long-term financial status, uh, you know, pets' heads were falling off, the sky was falling in. How in the world did we get here? Well, so the budget crisis actually started decades ago. The underlying problem is really the Illinois pension system and its lack of funding. Illinois has about $250 billion in pension liability. And to give you some idea, the, the four largest uh, companies in Illinois are Boeing, Caterpillar, United, Continental, and Allstate. Our pension uh, liability is more than the value of all four of those companies combined. Yeah, so, uh, but the real problem is that over the last several decades, the General Assembly has made decision after decision that left the pension system underfunded. Right, and for years, the pension system was essentially neglected, right? It created a growing liability for the state. Uh, but two important things to my mind happened in the first one in January 2015. That's when some important tax increases expired under former Governor Quinn. Uh, Illinois, as I understand it, uh, had temporarily increased income taxes from 3.25% to 5%, and that expired in January 2015. And then second, Bruce Rauner was sworn in as the new Illinois governor. He defeated Quinn. And when the budget came across his desk in 2015, uh, Rauner reviewed it and refused to sign it on the grounds that uh, it was unconstitutional. What, what was his argument there? Well, so the Illinois Constitution says that the uh, the governor and the and the General Assembly have to work together to create and implement a budget, and. Uh, and specifically, so what, what the Illinois Constitution says, it has a clause that says, proposed expenditures shall not exceed funds estimated to be available for the fiscal year as shown in the budget. There's a similar clause under the appropriations. And, and what Rauner was saying is that because the budget was didn't, uh, the numbers may or may not 
balance out that the budget was unconstitutional and that he wasn't going to sign it unless it met those requirements. Okay. And so he may have a constitutional point there, a legal point, um, even though we were passing unbalanced budgets for a number of years, you can't exactly waive a constitutional requirement, right? Um, but I, there were also some policy reasons for him doing that. You know, we try not to take sides here, but I think it was fairly clear and the governor was fairly open that he was tying the passing of a budget to some other policy issues that he wanted to uh, to take care of. Uh, workers' compensation reform comes to mind. Um, you know, what, uh, what was his argument there? Well, so the governor ran on a uh, he one of his his major points in his campaign was that he would not implement new ex, new tax increases. And so when that 2015 tax increase expired, it he made a huge point that that was not going to be in the new budget, that uh, as long as those tax increases were in the budget, he wasn't going to sign it. OK. And that's obviously makes it difficult to pay any bills if he's not going to do exactly <laughs> that. Yeah. OK. Um, so this essentially just became a gigantic game of chicken, right? With both sides saying who was going to swerve first. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of pain in the state. Universities were going uh, unfunded. As we mentioned, Medicaid payments weren't being made. Uh, dentist bills weren't being paid. Uh, I saw an article about that this morning, actually, in the, I think it was the Washington Post. Um, so we went several years without a budget, Right. Right. Um, 2016 passed and 2017, the initial budget deadline passed um, without a new budget implemented. And there were, as I recall, a number of lawsuits that were being filed um, against the state and the comptroller uh, to try to force funding in the federal courts on right. things, right? And I think some of those are still going on. Uh, but eventually, a uh, budget did get passed, correct? Right. The, uh, the General Assembly passed a budget through the legislative override process. Meaning, and so what essentially that what what essentially happened is they they passed a budget in the House and the Senate, sent it to the governor who refused to sign it, and then it went back, and they were able to get enough votes by uh, having ten Republican uh, House members and or General Assembly members sign on to overriding the veto that and, allowed this budget to pass without the governor. And we know how much the Republican Party likes defectors on those kinds of votes, right? So I imagine <laughs> yeah. those guys are running into some trouble now. All right. So that's the situation in uh, a nutshell, depressing as it may be. Um, and that's probably a good time to take our first break. And we, when we come back, we'll be joined by Representative Harris. This episode of At the Bar is brought to you by National Title Center, Inc., National Title Center has a great attorney agent program. As a National Title Center, Inc. agent, say that five times fast, you'll enjoy a wide range of fantastic benefits, including access to their vast resources and services with zero fees and no minimum order requirements. Interested? Go to their website at www.ntic.us and learn more about what they have to offer. Welcome back. Uh, we are pleased to welcome Representative Greg Harris to give us a little bit more insight into how the Illinois budget crisis and uh, how this happened, how we can fix it, and whether it's going to happen again. Um, representative Greg Harris has served in the Illinois General Assembly since 2006 as a representative for the Illinois 13th District. It includes an area on the north side of Chicago. He's a member of the House leadership and serves as chairman of the House Majority Conference. Uh, he's also chairman of the Appropriations Human Services Committee, so we might have to grill him on Medicaid. 
Um, and he serves on the executive insurance and aging committees. He is a member of the Joint Committee on Administrative Rules, the Illinois Juvenile Justice Leadership Council, and the Joint Legislative Health Insurance Exchange Committee. Welcome, Representative Harris. Thanks for having me. Sounds like you're a busy guy. Uh, more than I want to be sometimes. <laughs> so as one of the first uh, openly gay representatives in Illinois and the first openly gay representative to be elected to Illinois legislative leadership, um, I don't think anyone would disagree if we called you a trailblazer. Uh, tell us about your path to becoming an elected official. What, what made you want to get involved? Well, I, I think I, like a lot of people, saw within our own communities, you know, some real challenges and trials happen that just called us to action. You know, for for me as a, a gay man in Chicago, you know, when the AIDS epidemic, you know, swept the city and there was no responses from government or uh, corporations, there was no medical treatment. You know, a lot of us who had never been involved politically before said, you know, this is our friends' lives who are at stake and, uh, you know, we got to get involved and try to make a difference. Uh, you see this whether it's an issue like this, whether it's uh, the issue of organizing to prevent violence in our streets, uh, saving a local hospital, improving education. You know, I think a, a lot of us who are elected officials got in because there was something we had a passion for and wanted to be able to fight you know, to make it uh, into reality. And how's your experience been? It's been pretty good, you know, past gay marriage, uh, passed some laws. You were the bill sponsor. I was the sponsor of the gay marriage bill, the last state who was able to pass it. Uh, there were only six states ever passed this legislatively. Really? Before yeah. Obergefell? Well, other states had tried, they just could not do it. It was a very difficult political vote. And you remember, mm. that was just two or three years ago. And now mm. you look back and, you know, gay marriage seems sort of quaint, like, oh, when didn't we have that? And it's right. like, well, three years ago. And uh, when we had the vote in the General Assembly, uh, uh, people were saying the sky would be falling, there'd be you know, plagues uh, across the land <laughs> when the, the gays got stuff. married. You know, yeah. oh my God, it was going to be horrible. <laughs> Here we are a couple of years later, um, haven't seen one plague of frogs yet. Yeah, at least not because of that. Anyway, right? We'll see right. what uh, we'll see what our EPA secretary has in store for us over the next few years. Yeah, I think the EPA secretary probably would be okay with frogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your role in the legislature now. Nick just went through that. Uh, long list but uh what do you what do you enjoy most about it what well the, the, this year the thing i've liked most is yeah i'm also the chief budget negotiator for the house democrats and we were finally able to bring some sanity back to the fiscal operations of this state you know, in a bipartisan way where you know democrats and republicans just you know looked at the 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 mess that Governor Rahner has dragged us into over the last couple of years and said, you know, we've got to put party aside and politics aside and do the right thing to stabilize our finances, make sure our schools open, make sure our hospitals don't shut down, uh, make sure public safety is upheld. There's mental health treatment and addiction treatment available. You know, all the things government's supposed to do, but could not do because we, we had no appropriation authority. And we did that. And, yeah, I just want to point out, uh, you know, Illinois was founded in 1818. So next year, Illinois will be 200 years old. And for 198 of those 200 years, Illinois has passed budgets through, you know, Republican general, uh, general assemblies, Democrat general assemblies, Republican governors, Democrat governors. I think there was even a Whig back <laughs> in the old days. Uh, 
everyone always was able to get together and work it out and compromise. Yeah. So you said, well, Illinois is gone for two years without a budget. For the first time in two centuries of history, you know, we have went the last two years without a budget. And there's just one thing that changed. And that is, you, know, you now have Bruce Rauner, you know, who ran on the fact that he could run the state without uh, income tax revenue and you know, demanded that the income tax increase sunset. And he was just going to fix this stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, he came in and he just broke it more. I mean, our, our debt, as you, as you mentioned in, in the setup piece, has gone from $4 billion before he took office to $15 billion now. Uh, we, we, we're spending far more until we pass this budget than, uh, than we, we could afford. And it, it's been tough yeah. Yeah, making some cuts. But cuts and new revenue are what we have to do to fix this situation. So the state's up and running again, but I, I think it would be uh, fair and nonpartisan to say that the budget isn't exactly balanced, right? We're still well, show me where it's out of balance. We have a $355 million surplus after paying all, all of our expenses, increasing education funding by $350 million, uh, allocating enough money for uh, fully implementing child care and senior services. All of this is taken care of in the budget. Now, we did cut $3 billion. We had to make some very painful cuts. We cut $3 billion out of uh, uh, last year's spending levels. We provided for $8 billion in uh, funding to begin to pay down the backlog of old bills. Mm -hmm. We uh, passed a billion uh, for uh, in pension savings through different pension reforms that were actually suggested by the governor. So and those are only perspective, right? That doesn't pay off the, the backlog of pension, unfunded pension liability. Well, the pension liability, as Nicole said, built up over a number of years. Right. And it dates back really about 30, 35 years. And it began with Governor Thompson, you know, another Republican governor, and continued through Republican governors and Democratic governors and legislatures yeah, where, you know, we, we, as the state, as the cost of buying things, mm -hmm. you know, escalated and people wanted more and better funding for their schools, for senior programs, for autism. Well, you know, you can't keep spending more without bringing in new revenue. And what both Democrats and Republicans said since the 70s, gosh, we don't want to vote to raise taxes. People will hate us if we do that. So where can we find billions of dollars a year? And they all agreed, as Nicole said, to uh, take what they called pension holidays. So instead of making the pension payment, they just took that, you know, six or seven billion dollars and spent it on these new items. Yeah. Um, and you can only do that for so long. And right. we've got to stop doing that. And that's why, you know, in this budget and hopefully every budget we have going forward, you know, we're going to fully pay our pension obligation and begin to pay down, you know, that un un unfunded liability. The plan is to a certain extent to transition all new, like, uh, employees that would be entitled to a pension under this into the new like transition half pension half four hundred one k style plan as well. Am I right? Yeah, there there would be a tier three created under uh, the, the budget that passed. We had two tiers already trying to decrease you know the liability, particularly going forward. You know the right. the, the existing liability is for employees who've been on the payroll and retired. And you, and can't, you can't do anything you, about that. You, you, you can't. Yeah, you can't retroactively take away benefits that right. people have been promised under our constitution. We are trying to find ways to manage stuff going forward. But more importantly, the state as the employer has got to pay its share. Mm -hmm. that, that, that was the biggest problem. Nicole got it right in her intro that when we didn't pay our share, when we didn't put billions of dollars a year in, 
not only did you know we not have enough assets when uh, the stock market uh, crash came in the Great Recession, it wiped out a lot of the asset value you had. And then we had a double whammy of having to make up uh, for what we lost, plus paying what we actually owed. So what, uh, I mean, you were finally able to do something about that this year. Congratulations mm-hmm. and thank you. What guarantees do we have, you know, we being the people of Illinois have that those kind of pension holidays won't be uh, taken in the future? It seems, you know, to me that um, most of the incentives in politics are in the short term. And we have to look long term. And this is why, you know, again, I congratulate my colleagues who stepped up to vote on this. And, you know, I, I think the governor you know, has shown on this and now he's showing again on the issue of education funding that, you know, there's always, oh, and one more thing and mm-hmm. one more thing. And that's not how you negotiate with somebody. Yeah. Um, eventually, you've got to come in and say, here's what we want. Here's what you need. We're going to find a way to uh, reach a happy medium. That's what we did on the budget. That's what we are trying to do on school funding, and we should do the same on pensions. So, just for those of our listeners uh, who may not be, uh, you know, keep their keep their finger on the pulse of Illinois politics, uh, you mentioned um, the problems with education funding. Can you explain that a little bit? Uh, Education funding, uh, a large part comes from the state of Illinois for our public schools, and it has been probably 20 years since the funding formula has been changed. So the the way money is parceled out to each individual school district, and there are over 500 school districts in the state, are based on factors like attendance, the property wealth of the district itself, the amount of poverty uh, that exists in the schools, how many kids live in poverty, uh, how many may be English language learners, uh, how many may have uh, developmental disabilities or special education needs. So there are all these factors. And uh, as the demographics of the state have changed and population have changed, you know, we're still relying on data from you know decades ago to apportion out uh, how much each school district gets. Mm. So there are currently... Uh, two proposals on the table, uh, one which uh, the Democrats uh, passed the Senate uh, on a bipartisan basis and has not yet had action in the House support, would you know have a hold harmless so that no school district would get cut from where they are now. But we put $350 million more toward education in the budget we just passed to begin to focus on uh, sending money to schools where the need is the greatest. If it's a wealthy school district, if they're already spending more than the state per pupil average, it doesn't make sense for the state to just send them more money. We should channel that to the schools that have the greatest need. Uh, the, The governor has his own proposal that... Uh, creates, uh, distributes money in a different way. And uh, essentially it takes money away from the Chicago public schools and distributes to it to other districts in the state, which is just wrong. You don't penalize the largest school district in the state uh, just for political reasons. And then uh, we need to treat each of our, each of our students and each of our school districts uh, equally. And that, that's a problem that we see happening across the country, right? Essentially uh, money leaving um, wealthier urban areas, but which may have poor educational systems going toward rural areas, which may actually have stronger rural and suburban areas, which may actually have stronger educational systems. Well, and this is where the evidence-based model, which is the new model that it's been worked on for two years uh, under a task force led by 
the governor's education secretary, Dr. Beth Purvis. Uh, so they they presented this model, which had, as the governor said, a, a 90% of what he wanted in it before he said he wouldn't vote for it and proposed his own bill. So it, it's hard to negotiate with a moving tar- target when a guy gets 90% in a negotiation and then says, OK, I'm walking away because I didn't get the other 10%. It's sort of a head scratcher. You figure, <laughs> well, how do you ever you know, come to a conclusion on this stuff? I- isn't I think that that's actually I remember reading in the media that uh, even Governor Rauner's wife, who is involved with the ounce, was on the education aspect that she had some pretty negative things to say about her husband's stance on the budget crisis because of the way that it was affecting schools. And well, everyone had something negative to say about. <laughs> I mean, this is just an amazing process. You have all the education advocates from the different interest groups in the state. You had every school superintendent involved in these you know, massive negotiations for two years where they you know, hammered out every detail, came to a consensus product they could support. So you had the education community behind it, the school districts behind it, the Republicans and the Democrats participating in drafting it. And then at the just as they finish and everyone says, we've got a good product, the governor, you know, picks up his ball and goes home. Uh. Well, so I have a question. I I actually just earlier today, I read something uh, that was a quote from Speaker Madigan saying how, you know, his he didn't think that no matter what the without the override system that Governor Rauner was ever going to agree that something with the legislature had had come to. How do we prevent this same thing from happening next time the budget comes around? If Rauner is going to take the stance of no matter what the the legislature comes up with, he's not going to agree to it. What do we do? That, you know, if you look at what's going on nationally right now, you know, we, we have a president who is out there, uh, you know, he can't even call a terrorist a terrorist. Uh, he is. But he has so many legislative accomplishments. He reminds us of that constantly. I think he's, well, he's the best president since Lincoln. And, and this right? is where our governor is, too. Yeah, he is. the He's also the best governor since Lincoln. Uh, he may not know Lincoln wasn't a governor, but <laughs> stopped him before. he is the best governor since then. He's probably been to Lincoln's house, which is down the street right. from one of his that we gave him. Uh, it. it, it you, you sort of wonder what, what the ultimate goal is of somebody wanting to become the chief executive officer of a government and then obstruct or dismantle you know, every function of government that we've traditionally come to know and expect in this country, that we count on our schools opening, that we count on uh, hospitals being in our neighborhoods and the emergency rooms being open, and that uh, we count on if people are elderly or disabled, that there is assistance for them. It's just been taken for granted. Now you've got people who figure, let's starve this system. Yeah. You know, if it disappears, if it falls apart, that's less to pay for. And right. that that's just, you know, as somebody was brought up, you know, in my family and in our community, in our church, you know, everyone said, you help the other guy. Those who are fortunate enough to uh, be doing well in life should pay their fair share to help those who are struggling. And uh, You're not going to raise my taxes again, are you? Uh, we, we raised uh, our, our taxes this year. Uh, we raised them to the level the governor said he wanted. Yep. We matched the tax increase that was in the Republican budget, uh, 4.95%. It was exactly that which the governor wanted. We spent less than he wanted in his introduced budget, and he still vetoed it. Because, yeah. And with this phony line that it's out of balance. That was a beautifully measured response, by the way. I don't think you've practiced that at all before. 
Well, you know, we're doing a podcast, so my natural instincts would probably not sound as good <laughs> as my... Uh, no, it's, I, I mean, you're right. You're right. Um, is there... With the new budget, with the, the path that we're moving forward, I mean, we talked about a little bit about the the debt that we built up not having an appropriations ability for two years. What do we do to be able to move forward on that? Like, how do we break? Uh, so we, we have provided for $8 billion of debt repayment in the budget that we passed. Uh, several billion has already gone out the door. Uh, over half a billion dollars was sent out about a month ago to our universities who have not gotten a payment in two years because the governor refused to appropriate money for them. So $500 million has gone out to them. About uh, three quarters of a billion dollars went out uh, a couple weeks ago to our Medicaid providers. There is authority for $300 million of fund sweeps and $1.2 billion of interfund borrowing that Comptroller Mendoza is going through right now to pay down that uh, amount of uh, backlog of bills. But the biggest chunk, which would be basically uh, borrowing uh, through through uh, issuing bonds of uh, $6 billion, is stalled because the governor refuses to sign the authorization that would allow the bonds to be sold to pay down the backlog of bills. Now, while this goes on, while this goes on, while he refuses to do this, we're paying $800 million a year as taxpayers in interest to you know whoever... Uh, holds this debt right now. Mm -hmm. We're paying $800 million a year that could be going to public safety or violence prevention or schools or autism or you name it. I mean, we, we might as well every year have a ceremony on the Capitol lawn where we take three quarters of a billion dollars in a dump truck, pour it on the front lawn, douse it with gasoline and set it on fire <laughs> while everyone cheers. This Good is what- I mean, That's how yeah. government works in Springfield, right? Well, this <laughs> is, but it doesn't have to be this way. If the governor would just sign the bill that would allow us to borrow the money instead of at 12%, which we're paying now, but at 4%, which is the offer we've made, you know, we would cut that $800 million down to about $200 million. Do you think we'd be able to sell it at that rate? I know I've read some articles that were skeptical about uh, market interest at the 4% rate. Well, again, we the markets go up and down every day. Uh, the advisors we've talked to at the time they did the calculation said 4, 4.25% was something that they thought could be reasonable. When we get around to selling it, if... Uh, uh, there have been other adverse reactions out of the governor's office. Uh, maybe the rate will be higher. Maybe people will want a premium. I just don't know. Yeah, but it's better than 12. Yeah, if you have to go to 4.75 a year, it is way better than paying 12% a year and just burning it up on the front lawn. So what if our listeners want to get more involved with this issue or anything else they care about, what can they do? Who do they contact? I think they should contact their own state rep and senator. I mean, this is where the action is in the General Assembly, either uh, passing a budget, not passing a budget, how we deal with pension issues, you know, how we fund education. So you can go on to Illinois.gov, look for the State Board of Elections. If you don't know who your elected officials are, you can put your address in. It will tell you, you know, who's your congressman, your senator, your state rep, your state senator. And, you know, people often say, oh, why should I write or call you? You know, you probably get so many calls. Oh, it, it matters, doesn't it? it? You'd be surprised sometimes on what I would think of as important issues you would... If we get 10 or 12 actual phone calls or handwritten letters, it's pretty amazing. That few. 
that view can make a huge difference. Uh, people right now tend to go to like change.org petitions or whatever, and th that's an expression of feeling. But the number of people who will stop you in the store, who will write you a letter, who will call you and say, look, I think you should vote yes on this because here's how it affects my family. That makes a world of difference other than just you know, an automated email. Sure. What about social media? Is social media a good or a bad way to get in touch with someone like you or other representatives? I, I think a lot of us treat, you know, for me, it's really good. You know, I follow my social media. Uh, you know, but, but please be light on the obscenities and threats. I mean, I don't think that <laughs> helps. And, and, and We're very obscenity friendly here, though. So I think, unfortunately, <laughs> people are getting more obscenity and yeah. threat friendly, especially on social media where they can try to be anonymous and not say it to your face than they should be. And that's why politics has gotten so cheap. I mean, you can say, look, I think you're totally wrong on where you stand on taxes because X, Y and Z, that's fine. Or vote no on SB1, that's fine. But, you know, the, you know the, the threats, the bad words, which then just, you know, you get the trolls who come in and you know, it, it just escalates from there. It doesn't help. So next time I have issues with your education policy, I shouldn't just troll your Twitter page. Uh, you may troll it, but with just fewer obscenities, please. Yeah. Okay. So, what's your uh, cell phone number so all our callers can dial you and give us give, uh, give you their uh, what they really one, think? One eight hundred. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's probably a good place um, to wrap up substantively today. But before we go, Representative, uh, we're going to play a game that we like to call "Stranger Than Legal Fiction." This episode of At the Bar is brought to you by National Title Center Inc. National Title Center has a great attorney agent program. As a National Title Center Inc. agent, say that five times fast, you'll enjoy a wide range of fantastic benefits, including access to their vast resources and services with zero fees and no minimum order requirements. Interested? Go to their website at www.ntic.us and learn more about what they have to offer. So just so you know how it goes, uh, each of us has done a little bit of poking around the internet and found some of the strangest laws that we could find uh, in this fair country of ours. I'm going to summarize one of those laws. I made another one up completely. And then uh, you and Nick will guess which one is strange legal fact and which one is fiction. And then Nick's going to do the same thing. Um, and if you bet just 500, just 500, just get one of them right, you can get this nifty little YLS pen that I've been writing with today as a oh, go-home prize. That's very cool. I could also get legislative ideas for next session. There you go. <laughs> there you go. All right. So, Nick, do you want to lead us off? Uh, sure. So, we have two laws. And which one is real? Number one, in Wyoming, it is illegal to take a picture of a rabbit between January and April unless you have a permit. Or in Louisiana. Wait, just to take a picture? Just to take a picture. Any kind of picture. Any kind of picture. You have to have a permit to take pictures of rabbits between January and April in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Or in Louisiana, if you go to university, you uh, there, you cannot have a sorority house because any more than six unrelated women living in the same house is considered a brothel. What do you think, sir? See, I go with the rabbit. Because in Illinois, we have a law that you can collect roadkill and take it home to eat, but only if the thing you've run over is actually in season at the time you run over it and you're in the possession of a firearm identification card at the time. Wait, so, wait, 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 so you're telling me. Wait, yeah. 
Wait, I there's so many questions. <laughs> okay, so you need a you need a FOID card to run something over. If you to only if you intend to scrape it up and take it with you. If oh, so you, if you do it intentionally, you, it, it, or accidentally. <laughs> oh. But no eating it unless you have a FOID card and whatever that thing is was in season. Okay. Second question: How would anyone find out if you find out if you uh, ate it? <laughs> uh, I'm not on the enforcement side. I'm on the legislative side. I just remember that law. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, so you're going with I'm going one? with the rabbit. All right. I'll go with uh, number two just because I feel like I've heard laws like that exist on the books elsewhere. Nick? All right. So the fake law is actually number two. Oh, come on. Uh, while Tulane University <laughs> and Loyola University in New Orleans, neither of, actually, neither university has sorority houses. Um, but, and, and that's, uh, that's what they tell the students, or that's the rumor on campus as to why they don't have sorority houses. But in 1998, a group of eight students at Tulane University uh, searched the city and state laws, and they could not find anything. They, uh, they finally concluded that it was a myth. Wow. So did they start a sorority after that? Uh, they have sororities. They just don't have houses. Oh, well, did they move into a house together? I don't know. Seems That's a like good that. question. We should I, maybe for the next episode, I'll look that up. If there's All right. a I think we should. We don't want to leave anything uh, undone here. All right. Round two. One, it is illegal in Collinsville, Illinois, to wear saggy pants. And they define saggy as three or more inches below the hip and causing exposure to one's undergarments. If you're wearing saggy pants, it's punishable by up to a $100 fine. That's option number one. Option number two, in Crockett County, Texas, uh, you are within your rights to shoot anyone that you catch slant drilling for oil on your property in violation of your mineral rights. This would be an extension of the infamous uh, castle laws that have been much in the news lately. So, Representative, you're our guest. What do you think? The sagging pants law is the real law. Oh, you seem very, very certain about that. Nick? I will go with the mineral rights. People in Texas are really... Uh, they like shooting things. Yeah, and they're they're really big on like protecting their homelands. They are very big on that. Actually, unsurprisingly, the representative knows the laws in his own state. The saggy pants law is the real one. It is almost certainly unconstitutional, uh, but it's still on the books. So, Representative... Here's your pen, sir. Congratulations. Use it with pride. It's uh, it's majestic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that's a good place to end the episode today. I want to thank our guest, Representative Greg Harris, for joining us today. It was a lot of fun. I hope you'll consider coming on the pod again sometime. I also want to thank everyone who makes this machine run, including my co-host, Nicole Kahn, and our exec, Jen Byrne, and of course, our sound crew, uh, Steve Weirich and Ricardo Islas. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, like uh, Representative Harris said, at CBA at the bar. That's the at symbol, CBA at the bar, one word. Please also rate us and leave us your feedback on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, from all of us here at the CBA, this is John Amarillo, and we'll see you soon at the bar.